this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. We're taking a break this Easter season for, uh, from our study in Luke, and we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 15 this week and next as we think about the cross and the resurrection and what they mean in our lives. And I want to say something to the boys and girls, the children, first of all. Uh, I'm actually quite glad though I'm not glad that your teacher is unable to be here for the sake of illness, I'm glad that you're with us this morning because I've been thinking about what I might say to you from this text. And I want to say something to you first as I know you'll begin to think about your note sheets, but I'd like each one of you, boys and girls, to look up here for a moment. I want you to look at my Bible. What I have in my left hand right here is the Old Testament. Everything in this book, in this part of the Bible, was written before Jesus came. Everything in this book was written to point us to him and to speak about what he has done. In my right hand, I have the New Testament. Everything in this book was written by Jesus' disciples, and it looks back on what he did and explains it to us. And these are witnesses that bear witness to the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And I want you to know that because of these witnesses, we can be sure about the gospel, which I'm going to outline for you all today and which you see on your note sheets. I'll call your attention, boys and girls, again later on. But I want you to know that from the beginning as you listen your best, do your best to listen, and as you work through those sheets. Well, let me speak to all of us. Some simple truths are so profound that it seems they can bear the weight of the world. You see, every endeavor, every branch of learning is based upon fundamental truths. Music is a combination of melody, harmony, rhythm, and form. Art is a combination of line, shape, color, texture, and space. For the athletes among us, you know that football is nothing but blocking and tackling. Everything can be reduced to basic fundamental truths. The message of the Christian faith is similar. We can summarize it, we can state it in basic truths, but we also need to understand that it is fundamental. It's not just something that we can simplify as if it's so basic that we can forget about it after we're no longer children. It's something that forms the foundation of our lives, something that informs all of our life. And that's what we're going to see in our text this morning as we come to 1 Corinthians 15. As we see Paul, the apostle, speak to a church that needed to hear this message again. A church that had received and believed this foundational truth, but needed to be reminded of its fundamental importance. So if you found your place in 1 Corinthians 15, would you follow along with me as I read the first 11 verses? Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you have believed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your holy word this morning, we pray that you would illumine our minds and our hearts, soften our hearts, that we might receive this gospel, this good news upon which our life in Christ is founded. Make us to understand it. Make us, O Lord, to believe it. And for those of us who have received it, make us to grip it yet more strongly as we contemplate the importance of the gospel in our lives, as we commit our lives to holding fast to this gospel that was first passed down by your disciples, by your apostles, and has been passed down through the centuries, which we too have received just as it was delivered. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul wrote to a church that had forgotten the gospel. It's not that they forgot the facts of the gospel. They had received those facts and they knew those facts. What Paul is stating here in these first 11 verses, as he outlines the gospel, are things that they all agree upon. He's not trying to convince them of something that they don't already believe and know. But he is reminding them that they did receive it and they did believe it. And they need to be reminded of that which they had once received. You see, the evidence for their forgetting the gospel is not primarily in something they've said, although we will see that something they said suggests they're starting to forget. But it's in what we read in chapters 1 through 14 in this letter. We see that this is a church that is overcome with division and factionalism. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, people are saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. In other words, they're identifying themselves with their favorite teacher, their favorite apostle. They're not identifying themselves with Christ. And even those who are saying, I am of Christ, are saying it with an air of self-righteousness, as if they're somehow better than all these others who are quarreling and squabbling. They had forgotten the gospel. And that wasn't their only problem. They tolerated intolerable sins in their midst. They had forgotten the sanctifying power of Christ, which comes through the gospel. They had corrupted the Lord's table and turned it into something else because they had forgotten what the Lord's Supper symbolizes. They had forgotten the gospel. This is but a sampling of the problems that existed in the Corinthian church a sampling of the evidence that suggests they no longer remembered what it was that united them together in Christ. And so Paul begins with an appeal. He appeals to them as brothers, as brothers and sisters in Christ, and he reminds them of that which they had heard from at first. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand and by which you are being saved. Notice how Paul describes the gospel here as something they received in the past and as a matter of continuing importance. He preached it in the past. They received it in the past. Nevertheless, they stand in it now. At least they should be. And they had been. You see, this statement could be rendered, you have stood in it. This was your character, is the idea. What happened? Let me explain this by using the parable of the sower to help us to understand Paul's concern for the Corinthian church. If you remember the parable of the sower from Matthew 13 or Mark 4 or Luke 8, you remember that there's a man in this parable that Jesus told who goes out casting seed everywhere he goes. And the seed falls on different kinds of soil. The seed represents God's word, and the soil represents different kinds of people who hear that word. There's one kind of person who hears that word, who's represented by uh, soil on the path, and birds come and eat it away. And in that picture, you have a person who's heard God's word proclaimed, but Satan has come and taken it away. That person hasn't understood it, or they, they haven't really received it. Well, we can see that's not the Corinthians. They had received the gospel. The second and third types of soil speak about a, a kind of person who does receive God's word initially, maybe even with great joy and enthusiasm, and yet that person does not persevere in faith. Ultimately, that person falls away from one of two influences. Either persecution or trials cause that person to leave Christ, to abandon the gospel, or, on the other hand, the offer of worldly wealth or some kind of worldly possession influences that person to abandon the gospel. There's either a carrot or a stick, you see, that prompts that person to abandon the gospel. And in the Corinthians' life, that doesn't really fit the picture either. They're not really that kind of soil, at least so it seems. For they had received and believed the gospel, and they had held it fast. And yet as Paul thinks about their situation, the foundations are beginning to crack. It's not quite clear that they fit in that fourth group. It's kind of a problem for Paul. He looks at them and he says, what if they are forgetting the gospel? What if they're abandoning the gospel? And yet Paul is persuaded that they are part of this fourth group, but he recognizes that they need some shoring up the, of the foundations. And so he writes them this letter, and he writes them this passage here in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul encourages them to hold fast the gospel, lest they were those, are those who believed in vain. That is, he says, they are being saved by this gospel. Not you were saved, and that is that. But you are being saved on the condition that you hold fast to the gospel unless you believed in vain. But wait, how does this fit with what we know the Bible teaches elsewhere? The Bible teaches clearly that God preserves His people faithful to the end. As we as a congregation have been learning and reciting the words of 1 Peter chapter 1, we can see that very truth in words that we read together last week from 1 Peter 3.5 where Peter describes this Christian congregation as those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
God preserves his people faithful to the end. Why is Paul then concerned that the Corinthians might not be persevering in the faith? And the answer is that when we recognize that Scripture interprets Scripture and we put the whole picture together, we realize that, yes, it's true that God sovereignly preserves His people faithful to the end, but He also sovereignly appoints the means by which He will preserve them. And though that, one of those means, one of the primary means, is God's Word. The other is God's Spirit working in us to preserve us. God uses His Word in our life to keep us from falling away. You can see that, for instance, in John 16, 1. There Jesus said to His disciples, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Scripture teaches that God will preserve us faithful to the end, and yet Jesus understood that His words were the means that God was using in the lives of His disciples to keep them from leaving the faith. None of this means that God is not sovereign in our salvation from first to last. It means that God uses means, and Paul understood this, and he understood that the words that he spoke and the reminders that he gave were one of the means that God had appointed to preserve the faith of the Corinthians. So he doesn't write this because he's begun to doubt God's sovereignty. He writes this because he's fully convinced of God's sovereignty, that if he has called the Corinthians that they will respond appropriately to the things that he writes. And we do have sufficient testimony from 2 Corinthians and from the early church that indeed God did use this letter and these words in their lives to keep them faithful for many years to come. And so we can understand what Paul is doing and what he's saying when he says that you must hold fast to the word that he preached. You must hold fast to the gospel and states that that is the necessary condition for their salvation. They must keep on believing what they had received. And so it is with us. And this is God's means, this letter, not just for the Corinthians, but for us to preserve us faithful unto the end. Now, we might wonder if this is so important, why has Paul waited until the 15th chapter of his letter to say anything about it? The first answer is that he didn't wait. Not only was it the first thing that he delivered to them when he met the Corinthians, But all through chapters 1 through 14, he is speaking about the gospel. Even in the very first two chapters, he presents the gospel as God's wisdom for salvation. And yet he has waited till chapter 15 to put it to them straight, so to say. To lay it out in this very simple and straightforward way. Because at this point, he decides to respond to a particular problem in the Corinthian church. And that particular problem you can see in verses 12 through 14. Look down at verse 12 through 14 with me. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, Paul has already said that your faith was in vain if you don't hold fast to what you believe. But there's another thing that could make their faith in vain, that it could make it uh, worthless and meaningless, namely, if the gospel isn't actually true. And the problem in Corinth is that some people are saying, not that Christ wasn't raised, some people are saying there is no future resurrection of the dead. Where this came from, we cannot say to be sure. 
We know that Greeks thought that the idea of the resurrection was laughable. We know that even some Jews, the Sadducees particularly, denied that there would be a future resurrection. Whatever brought them to this, people in Corinth were also saying, not all of them, but some of them were saying, there is no future resurrection from the dead for all who believe. There is no resurrection. And whether they said, we die and that's it, or they just thought of themselves as going to a spiritual existence in heaven with no future existence in bodily form. They were denying the resurrection, and Paul wanted them to understand that that denial implied a significant denial. If they deny their own future resurrection, then by implication they're denying the resurrection of Christ. And if they're denying the resurrection of Christ, then they are denying the gospel. That is the problem that Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 15. It's why he lays it out here. It's as the old maxim goes, false in one thing, false in everything. If Christ has not been raised, Paul says, then our faith and our preaching is meaningless. It's in vain. But Christ has been raised, and that is what Paul wants to remind them of. He wants to remind them of what the gospel is and why it matters, why it is the matter of first importance, as he puts it. And I want to show that to you by highlighting a few things in this passage. Three historical events. The gospel is three historical events that are proven or testified to by three trustworthy witnesses. Three historical events on the basis of the testimony of three trustworthy witnesses for one eternal purpose. For one eternal purpose. Let's see this together. Here we begin by noting that Paul outlines the gospel in terms of three historical events, and we can state them simply. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ was buried. And Jesus Christ has been raised. Now, of course, we can look and say that his post-resurrection appearances are further historical events, but we will treat those under the heading of witnesses. Here we're focusing on those first three events, that Christ died, that he was buried, and he was, has been raised. Now, it will not do to suggest, as some have suggested, that this is only some kind of figure of speech, that this is only uh, something that was invented by the earliest Christians in order to encourage people that there is some kind of merely spiritual resurrection that waits for all of us. No, we must understand, as Don Carson has frequently observed, that the Christian faith differs from other religions because it depends upon the truth of historical claims. As Paul said quite clearly, if there's no resurrection, there's no salvation, and that is the end of the matter. If this did not happen then we are not saved from our sins. We need to recognize that. There's no way around it. Only the most strident contrarians, only the most stubborn skeptics deny that Jesus ever existed. He really lived. We have ample evidence from the testimony of Scripture, from the very existence of churches 2,000 years ago, from even other texts from that period, written by people who weren't Christians, who testified to the reality that a man named Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth lived. And we have no problem believing that he died and was buried. Every person who's ever lived 
has died or will die. We know that to be a fact. We have no problem believing that. Even that he was buried, not everyone's buried, but what's wrong with saying that Jesus was buried? Even the particulars of his death are not difficult to believe. The Romans crucified thousands. How hard is it to believe that a man from Nazareth might have been one of them? The rub comes when we bring up the resurrection. When Paul preached in Athens in Acts 17, people attended to his words until he mentioned the resurrection. Then many laughed and left. They mocked his preaching as ridiculous and foolishness. And Paul makes mention of that at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, that to the Greeks, their preaching is nothing but foolishness. In our own day, it's not very different. Unbelievers have devised any number of clever arguments to explain away the resurrection, but most simply wave it off as if it's an invention from ancient minds. It's hard for the modern mind to believe it, but it was no less difficult in Paul's day. Nevertheless, the gospel makes this claim. Christ died, was buried, and on the third day, he was raised. And it states this truth that he was raised, or he has been raised, as a truth with continuing importance. It's not just a fact of history that belongs to history, but the effects of this reality persist into our own day and forever. He has been raised. And how can we believe it? The answer is on the basis of three trustworthy witnesses. Three trustworthy witnesses who testify to the truth of the gospel. Paul draws attention to the united testimony of the scriptures, of the apostles, and of many eyewitnesses. Notice how he says again and again that this took place in accordance with the scriptures that Christ died in accordance with the Scripture, that He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Paul is making a case that the very first witness that testifies to the truth of the Gospel is the Word of God as He spoke it through His prophets of old. That's what I was saying to the children earlier, and that's what I'm saying to you, that we can believe this because God said that it would take place. In October of 1932, the great baseball player Babe Ruth stepped up to the plate, laid his bat against his leg, and held up two fingers. He had already hit one home run in that game. He was signaling to the crowd that he was about to hit a second. Now, one of the reasons why Babe Ruth is considered perhaps the greatest baseball player of all time is because that kind of thing, to some extent, was within his power. He hit more than 700 home runs in his career, and so he was one who, with some degree of accuracy, was able to predict ahead of time that he would hit that home run, and he did. It's gone, come down in legend. How many other times he did the same kind of thing and didn't hit the home run, we can't say, but I'm sure that happened too and certainly has happened since. But here what I'm doing in this illustration is taking you from the lesser to the greater. The babe called his shot in 1932, and fulfilled his promise to the crowd. But God, in many times and at many places, called his shot, so to say, through the prophets. He predicted the things that he would do again and again, and he always brings it to pass every single time because it's always within his power to do everything, he says. And the 
primary thing that he, through the prophets, said he would do was that he would accomplish salvation for his people by sending his son to die on a cross and by raising him from the dead. To die on a cross and rise from the dead. God said it again and again through the prophets. Now, if we're honest and we're honest with ourselves, we recognize that many of the places where he said those things are somewhat mysterious to us. They're difficult to understand. They were difficult for Jesus' disciples to understand. He told them again and again that he had to go to the cross, that it was necessary for him to suffer and die and rise. We can see that, for instance, in Matthew 16, 21. After Peter confesses that he is the Christ, that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus began to show his disciples that he had to go to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of the chief priests and scribes, that he had to be crucified, and on the third day, rise from the dead. He showed that to them from the Scriptures, and he predicted that himself. And that, too, is Scripture. So even if we cannot understand all that the Old Testament says about the coming of Christ and what he would accomplish for his people, we can know with certainty on the basis of those who bore witness to it that Jesus said very clearly before he did it that he would go to the cross, that he would die, and that he would rise. And the surest way to prove that you're trustworthy and that you're true, the surest way for him to prove it was to go as it was written of him. And he went as it was written of him to the cross, and he died, and he in fact rose. And he said that it would happen beforehand, just as the scriptures say. And so in Luke 24, verses 44 and then 46, after his resurrection, when he appeared to his disciples, he said this, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. And so we know, because God said it would happen beforehand, that he is Christ because he did exactly as it was written of him. And we can believe that it's true because it's not some clever invention of men who came after Jesus, but it's the very clear testimony of those who came before him who through God's power testified that he would do it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you can know that Christ died and rose because God said it would happen through the prophets before he brought it to pass. And then he accomplished it. Now, the disciples, I've said, the apostles particularly, the twelve, they are the second group of trustworthy witnesses. And Paul presents them to us here in this text as he lists all of the people to whom Jesus appeared after his resurrection. That he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter. Then to the twelve. And he continues on, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul notes this string of witnesses, the disciples of the Lord and a broader group. In fact, at one time, he says, Christ appeared to 500 people in one instance after his resurrection. And Paul begins with the testimony of the apostles because God 
put a stamp of credibility on their testimony. Not only did Jesus beforehand, when he was with them in the upper room, say that the Spirit of God would faithfully bring to their mind all that Jesus had said and done so that they might record those things and declare those things to people. But in the book of Acts, we see that the Spirit of God put a stamp of credibility on their testimony by doing mighty works, by doing signs and wonders through them so that the people might know that these are people to be trusted, for they are sent by God. And yet he doesn't just simply leave off with the apostles, but he also speaks to the credibility of the testimony on the basis of the many eyewitnesses. Not just more than 500 at one time, but many, many people saw Jesus after he rose. Angels. An angel met the women who came to the tomb and explained to them the things that had happened. Jesus himself appeared to them and spoke to them and sent them to go and bear witness to his disciples. Jesus appeared in the midst of his disciples in the upper room. He had them touch him and feel him and see that he was real and not just an apparition, not just a ghost. He showed them again and again. He appeared to people who were not among the twelve, but who were his disciples, on the road to Emmaus. And he interpreted to them the scriptures as he revealed himself to them as the risen Lord. And all of these testimonies are recorded for us in the Gospels. The Gospel writers draw together these eyewitness testimonies. So even though these people at this point have all fallen asleep, we can trust their testimony. It's easy for two or three people to get together and devise a clever myth, to use Peter's words. But it's very hard for 500 people to get together and keep their story straight. Do you see how this manifold witness serves to give us confidence in the gospel that we have received and we have believed? These three testimonies given by God to us to strengthen us in faith, and to show us the truth of the gospel that we have received and that we have believed. And so we know that the historical facts of the gospel are indeed true. But we must also know this. No one can be saved by simply knowing and affirming that these things took place. We must recognize that three, these three facts of history took place to fulfill God's eternal purpose for us in Christ. And that purpose can be stated in two simple phrases which we see in this text. Jesus died for our sins. And all of this has come to us as it came to Paul by the grace of God. Let me unfold these two ideas for you. You see, Christ did not only die and rise to prove that God is powerful. Neither did He simply die and rise to give us an example or to defeat the devil. It is true that his death is an example to us. It is true that by his death he conquered the devil. And it is true that his death and resurrection prove the power of God. And yet these are not the, the only reasons why he came to die. The reason he came to die is to satisfy our debt against the holy God. Christ died for our sins because we have all sinned against a holy God. Indeed, He died because we are all born sinners. Every one of us deserves to be punished for our sins. 
And that is a just judgment that we deserve. Because God is holy and God is infinite. And we have sinned against our infinite God. Therefore, our debt is an infinite debt, which is one that we can only pay in eternity. That is why God's judgment justly is forever. But God sent His Son in the fullness of time, His perfect Son, the infinite Son of God, to give His life in a moment to satisfy the debt we owed to pay for all of our sins in one act on the cross. And He did it for our sins. We must understand why Jesus came to die. He came to die for our sins. We must understand that all of this is according to the grace of God. We can see that in the example that Paul gives from his own life. Listen to what he says about himself when he speaks about Christ appearing to one eyewitness after another. Then in verse 8 he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. When Paul calls himself one untimely born, he's not saying that he was a little bit late to the party. He's saying that he's like a stillborn child. That's the word he uses to describe himself, that he was born too early and didn't make it. That's what he's like, and you can start to see that picture as you think about what he says about himself, as he explains this metaphor for his own life. He doesn't deserve to be called an apostle. Why? Because he says, I persecuted the church of God. We need to see how severe and serious that sin was in the way that Paul saw it. In the book of Acts, it's described in this way. He was resisting the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51, and even Christ said to him, Why are you persecuting me? He was persecuting the Lord Jesus, Acts 9.4. In his mind, he was like one who was dead before he was born. He was persecuting all of these people who had found new life in Christ, and he was seeking to kill them. But he was the one who was like the dead man because he should have accepted this message with all that he knew of the Scriptures, but he rejected it. He persisted in being dead in his sins. And yet Paul understood that all of this was so that God could show the greatness of His grace in Paul's life. So he wrote to Timothy near, nearing the end of his life. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. 
And here Paul describes the example that he is in 1 Corinthians 15, that we're to look at him as one who was dead, like a stillborn child, and see that this one who was dead received new life by the grace of God. God appointed him to be one who was not zealous in persecuting Christians, but to become one who was zealous in spreading the gospel of Jesus. And indeed, he worked harder than all of the other apostles. But even this was not because Paul was so great, he says, but it was God's grace working in him. And it doesn't really matter whether the Corinthians received the gospel from the one who worked really hard or from another. It doesn't matter. They preached the same message. So they believed, so they received. And they need to see in Paul's life, and we need to see in Paul's life, that the gospel that we have believed is a message about God's grace to sinners. We don't deserve anything that he's given us. Not one of us deserves it. And yet, God is love. And he loves to show grace to sinners. He calls us to repentance and faith. And he demonstrated his love chiefly in this, that he sent his son to atone for our sins, to be the propitiation for our sins, that we might find life through him, as the Apostle John states in 1 John chapter 4. So we see and understand that the gospel proclaims a message of Christ's death for us, for our sins, according to the grace of God, and his resurrection for us. Next week, we're going to look more closely at this idea of resurrection and how Christ's resurrection is so important for us in our Christian life. Today, I want to dwell primarily on the message of the cross. And here I ask the children to look at me again and to give me your attention. When I was your age, I remember, I knew a lot of the stories that you hear in Sunday school and otherwise when you read the gospel with your parents and your teachers. I knew the stories, but I could not understand them. I couldn't make heads or tails of them. And I wonder if some of you feel that way too. You see, it wasn't until I was a bit older than you when I was 14 years old that a man from my church explained to me what grace means. And I want you to understand what grace means. It's a gift that you don't deserve. Sometimes I'll bet your parents give you gifts that you don't deserve. Sometimes they come home maybe with a treat or some kind of gift, but you've been bad all day, and you don't deserve it. But your parents lovingly, graciously give you that treat, that gift, because they love you, even though you don't deserve it. Everything that God gives us, we don't deserve. And I want you to understand that. Everything He gives us is a gracious gift. Primarily, I want you to see this with respect to what Jesus did. It was a gift of God's grace, and you don't deserve it. But God loves you, and he gave that gift for, to you with a call to believe that he indeed died and rose and lives forever. That if you trust in his sacrifice for you, you will live forever too. And that's his call to all of us, brothers and sisters in Christ, We are charged to believe this gospel, to receive it in our hearts, and to build our lives upon it, not as something that's just for children that we can move on from, as if we graduate from the simple things, but as something that is 
fundamental, that is the foundation for our life, that is the matter of first importance, that applies and matters in everything in our lives. What does that look like if the gospel is foundational in our life? Individually, for you, it will look like it looks for Paul. That is, you will see that you are living your life with the same kind of attitude that Paul lived his life. When Paul interpreted the things that he did, he did not say, I'm just such a disciplined, hardworking guy that I'm better than all those other apostles. Even though I came last, I worked harder and got ahead of them. That's not how he interprets his life. He says, it's all by the grace of God. Whatever I've done more than them or less, it's all by God's grace. And whatever trial he faced in his life, what did he say? It's all by God's grace. If he faced sickness, it's by God's grace. If he faced persecution, it's by God's grace. God sustains me through it. God enables me in it. God has appointed even this for me, not because I'm so bad, not because he's no longer caring about me, but because he loves me to show his grace to me. That's the way Paul thought. And individually, that's the way that we ought to think. And corporately, together as a church, we need to think this way too. We can simply see that by reflecting on the Corinthians and all of their challenges. They were failing to love one another. They were failing to forgive one another. They were failing to count others as more important than themselves. Not because they were so undisciplined, but because they had forgotten the gospel. They had forgotten what Jesus did for them, and so they weren't living with that same mindset towards others. They needed to be reminded together of the gospel, and so do we in our life when we think about what is pleasing to God. Let us think in terms of the gospel as we look to Christ's example, as we think about what he's done for us, as we think about God's character and his love and his graciousness to us. Let us think about the gospel and let these things be the foundation of our lives. It, then we will be like those great ancient buildings of old whose foundations and structures are made of the same choice stones. And even as you walk through them, the sculptures that adorn those buildings are all made of the same beautiful stones. From floor to ceiling and all throughout, it's the same material and yet it's one Beautiful structure. And so it is with the Christian in this life. It is the grace of God in everything. Our lives are founded upon His grace and the testimony of those who bore witness to His grace in Christ. And as Paul showed, our lives are structured around the work of Christ. And even in our own lives, God makes us to bear witness to this gracious work as He works His grace in us to make us as those who were once dead and yet are now alive, just like our Lord, who Himself died and has been raised for our sake. So let us never forget this one thing and let it always be the foundation upon which our life together rests. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you, O Lord. We praise you for your grace that you have shown us and for your great love that you have given us. We all know that we deserve nothing from your hand.
And yet you, O Lord, are a gracious Lord. Indeed, O Lord, you are the one who will provide, who declared long ago that on the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And so, as you always do, you brought your word to pass in Christ. May we never forget it. May we always remember it and live in light of this one foundational truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.